Our scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew. And let me remind you, as I did last week, that the Upper Room Devotional Guides for May and June are available Many of you picked them up last week, and thank you for that, but there's still plenty more. Regular size, large print, they're in the back, in the narthex, and in the building next door. So keep that in mind, if you will. want to continue with our Easter Tide, Easter season series from 1 John. We started on the Sunday after Easter. We talked about the word if, if we confess, and what a big word if is in our faith and in this letter, this homily first john and then we talked about what it means to be children of god why that's important how that happens and then last week we talked about loving and believing believing and loving how the two what we believe is expressed in the way we love and care for one another and for all others and this week we will continue by talking about what's love got to do with it c.s lewis who is one of my favorite writers and Perhaps yours too. Chronicles of Narnia, Great Divorce, so many wonderful books. A book he wrote about the loss of his wife. And uh, so many things he said that continue to inspire us and, and guide us. But he said to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and eventually broken or possibly broken but often broken 
In a series titled The Four Loves, Lewis speaks of the four great Greek words that we use for love. And let me review those very quickly. Um, four different words in Greek. The English simply lists them as the word love. There's first storge or affection as a mother and I'd say as a father, as a parent shows toward a young offspring, that, that very special kind of love. Two is philia or, or friendship, the bond between two people with common interests and goals. Three is eros or romantic love, the feeling of being in love. And then four is agape or divine love, the love of God for humanity and ideally the love that Christian folk have for one another. In his book, Wishful Thinking of Seekers, ABC, Frederick Bigner had this to say about love, and it amazed me how much his thoughts just kind of paralleled and lined up with, with C.S. Lewis. He said, the first stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The second or middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love, and the third or final stage, he said, is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The Greeks had many words for love, he said, but we, we have only one. One kind of love is the conclusion he came to, the unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic philia of friends, agape giving itself away freely, no less for the murderer, he says, than for the victim. The King James Version translates the word as charity. These are all various manifestations of a single reality. To lose yourself in another's arms or in another's company or in suffering for all persons and all who suffer, including the ones who inflict suffering upon you. To lose yourself in this way, he said, is to find yourself. It's what it's all about. It's what love is. Of all powers, love is the most powerful because it alone can conquer and penetrate the most impregnable of all fortresses, the, the human heart. It's the most powerless because it can do nothing except by consent. To say that love is God, he said, is romantic idealism. To say that God is love is either the last straw or the ultimate truth. Love, not just an emotion, secondhand or otherwise, but a verb. Love does things, bears things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion. It's not a little red heart sticker that you put on the bumper of your car. There's more to it than that. It's an act of the will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, He's not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy, emotional feeling all the time, on demand. On the contrary, he's telling us to love our neighbor in the sense of doing something gracious for them, to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that same end. This, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbor without necessarily liking them but someone else has said if you keep liking somebody long enough you may eventually end up loving them as well but in fact liking somebody may stand in the way sometimes we become overprotective or, or sentimental and instead of reasonably honest friends 
Love is not just an invitation, but it's a command. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, not like we have an option here. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Verse 21 of the scripture lesson, the commandment we have from him is this, those who love God love their brothers and sisters also. I like what Leonard Griffith said. He said, as Christians, we are not invited to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. And only as we observe this law do we retain any valid link with the historic revelation of God through Jesus the Christ. It is this quality of love in our hearts that authenticates our Christianity before the world. Our genuineness. And it sets us apart from people who've never heard of God or who have rejected God along the way. Love, not just an action, but a a reaction. Verse 19 in our passage puts it so directly, and it's become a favorite verse of many in many households that I'm aware of. Verse 19, very simply and directly, we love because God first loved us. Not an action on our part, so much as a reaction on our part to the love of God. And all we can do is to react to so great a love. If God had not first loved us, we would have not the ability, we wouldn't have the desire, we wouldn't be able to love others. Love is born of God. God's love is the catalyst for all human love. Not just an option, but a requirement. And two verses from our passage just make this so very clear. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then verse 11, Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. In his book, The Taste of New Wine, some of you will remember Keith Miller. He's a, a writer from some days past. He said that our churches are filled with people who outwardly look contented and at peace, but inwardly are crying out for someone to love them just like they are. They seem to be at peace, but inside they're confused and frustrated and often guilty and and afraid and unable to communicate even within their own families sometimes. But the other people in the church, he said, look so happy and contented that one seldom has the courage to admit admit one's own faults and one's own failures and one's own shortcomings and fears and all those things that are churning inside of us. We look around and we see often a group of self-sufficient, everybody's okay, all is well people. But sometimes there's something beneath the surface. And sometimes loving folks means getting to know them at more than that surface level where everything seems okay and taking the time, making the effort to reveal ourselves at a deeper level. Where are those struggles and those fears? And loving one another. For those of us who would follow Christ, it's just simply not an option. Love, not just an emotion, but a verb. Not just an invitation, but a command. Not just an action, but a reaction. Not just an option, but a requirement. 
if we are to get along with one another, if we are to make a transforming difference in our homes and in our places of work and in our schools and in the church and in God's world, if we're to make a real difference, then everything must be our answer to the question, what's love got to do with it? Now, I want to back up for just a moment or two and focus on verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Mature love might be a better term than perfect love. We hear the word perfect, and that throws us, and we think, well, I still make mistakes. I still get off track. Of course we do. We all do, but... A mature love makes mistakes, but they're more often than not mistakes of the head and not of the heart. Mature love casts out fear. Whoever fears, the writer says, has not reached perfection or maturity in love. And verse 18 flows from verse 17. It has to do with our fear of judgment. The prospect of standing before God's judgment holds no terror for those who are growing in love. For when the love of God is properly known, one writer said, it calms our minds. And that's according to, of all people, John Calvin. Now the flip side of the observation follows. Since fear implies the threat of punishment, the fearful one by definition has not been perfected in love. In other words, Christians do not mature in divine love, as someone has said, under the lash. Fear of punishment. These terrible things are going to happen to you if you don't do this and say that. Because love, by its very nature, springs from God's merciful sending of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But that fear persists, doesn't it? But God's persistent, encouraging presence, not of fear of judgment to come is experienced in the lives of those who entrust themselves to Christ and to his care and those who activate that trust and love for one another. Yet it seems like that fear across the years has been used to bring folk into the kingdom of God. And some of you will know what I'm talking about. You've been in those services. You've been around those folks where they think the only way to make a Christian out of somebody is to scare the hell out of them. When I was a student pastor in Waco, Georgia, I had two little churches, Waco and a little church called Poseyville. And there was a guy in one of those churches. I I went to see him, and we talked, and and we got along well. And he told me, he said, "Um, I enjoyed having you here and stop by any time, but let's don't talk about church. Let's don't talk about those kind of things. He said, because when I was growing up, I went to a little church, And they tried so hard to put the fear of God in everybody and to scare folks that I had my fill of it. And I have a hard time, even now, he said, coming back to the church. So stop by any time you want to, but let's don't talk about church. That's been over four decades ago, and I I wonder sometimes about this guy. And I wonder and I hope and I pray that somewhere along the way, He was loved back into the fellowship of the church and he was able to overcome that fear that was put in his heart so early. Fear, it seldom travels alone. And you know some of fear's traveling companions, some of fear's biggest buddies, anger and pain and resentment and 
bitterness. Marie Mobley, you may not recognize the name, she was the mother of a young man named Emmett Till. And she was asked if she harbored any bitterness toward the two white men or toward white folk in general for the brutal murder of her son in 1955. You, you may have read about that, heard about it. And what she said just made me want to say, wow, how could she? She said it certainly would be unnatural not to hate them. Yet I have to say that I'm unnatural. The Lord gave me shield. I love that expression. The Lord gave me shield, gave me protection. I don't know how to describe myself. I don't want them dead. I did not wish them in jail. If I had to, I could take their four little children. Each had two. And I could raise those children as if they were my very own. And I could have loved them. I believe the Lord meant what he said and try to live according to the way that I've been taught. That's what a mature love looks like. That's what a mature love seems like when it becomes an exorcist and casts out the fear and the bitterness that can take over our hearts. Clifton Black wrote, the church's love is progressively shaped by Christ and distilled of all corrupting naivete, bitterness, and cynicism. As this happens, when we come to finally realize we do not interpret 1 John, 1 John interprets us. Some of you are familiar with William Sloan Coffin. He was pastor of the great interdenominational Riverside Church in New York City back in the 1980s. They've had some Tremendous pastors, Harry Emerson, Fosdick, and, and others. But William Sloan Coffin was pastor of that church, and he was interviewed by a guy named Bob Abernethy. He died in 2006, Coffin did. But let me share just a few of his thoughts with you from that interview. We're talking about mature love now, casting out fear. And, and his words, better than mine would ever be, spoke to my heart. He said, I understand that people want to be safe. They want to be polite. They want to be obedient. They want to be comfortable. He said, that's not being alive. Irenaeus, the early church father, said, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Now, if you back off from every little bitty controversy in your life, he said, you're not alive. And what's more, he said, you're boring. It's a terrible thing that we settle for so much less. The bedrock of my faith, mind you, I didn't get to it easily, is that we are loved by God. God loves us as we are, but too much to leave us that way. We are loved by God, and that's what gives us value. We don't achieve value. It's not because we have value that we are loved by God, but because we're loved by God, we have value. Our value as human beings is not an achievement. It's a gift. We don't have to prove ourselves. All that is taken care of. All we have to do is express ourselves, return God's love with our own. What a world of difference there is between proving yourself and expressing yourself. And then as a side note, his son, Alexander, 24 years old, was killed in 1983 when his car ran off the road into the Boston Harbor and just slipped in on a rainy night. And he said, after my son died, I preached a sermon. And the part that many people appreciated was when I said, I have no comfort in thinking that it was the will of God that Alex die. 
My comfort lies in feeling that of all hearts to break, God's was the first. The love of God to me, he said, is absolutely overwhelming. It was an awful tragedy, he said. And then he said, I'd just as soon live a little bit longer. But when you're 80, you can't complain. To quote FDR, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Fear of death is what is insidious. And once the fear is behind you, then it's only the physical death that's ahead of you. It's death that brings us to life. But we need to be scared to life, not scared to death. I await death with no protest. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He said, I'm sorry, Dylan Thomas, but that's not always the case. You can go gentle into that good night. Stop complaining. Remember what old Hamlet said, the readiness is all. Basically, when I said I don't think much about faith, I was really thinking I don't think much about what comes next because our lives run from God, in God, and to God. And that's enough. We might want to know more. And demanding that I know more about the afterlife somehow demeans my faith. One world at a time, I think. What a powerful guy he was. And then my words for just a moment, casting out fear. Fear of judgment, fear of death. Casting out fear and all of its lousy friends. How do we go about it? Do we slip up behind it and hit it over the head with a tire tool and drag it out by its feet? It seems to me the best way to be rid of fear is to crowd it out. There is no fear in love, but mature love crowds out fear. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, hear us now in these moments. In a few moments of silence as well, as we acknowledge and admit before you our fears and the way those fears often control us and keep us from being the loved, beloved children of God that you've called us to be. So in this service today and through these days to come, may your love continue to so overwhelm us that fear gets just pushed out. And we are able to live in such a way that we make a difference to all those who know us and all those we encounter. Hear us now. Take away our fears. In Jesus' name, amen.